Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Lamp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Andy, it is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You are telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. I love The Next Reel Season 4. Do you know why? I don't. Why? Because we got to talk about my favorite movie, Terry Gilliam's Brazil. That's not even an adaptation. Uh, no, but it was such a great part of our, of our great Terry Gilliam series. And a few others in that series were adaptations, like The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, adapted from Raspi's stories, and La Jete, which inspired 12 Monkeys. Oh, right. And for our Man With No Name trilogy, we saw how Sergio Leone's A Fistful of Dollars was basically stolen from Kurosawa's Yojimbo. We added Labor Day to our Jason Reitman series, adapted from Joyce Maynard's novel. Oof, there's one we'll always regret. Our big Stephen King series covered adaptations like The Shining, Cujo, Christine, and Stand By Me, great horror and coming-of-age tales. Another Coen Brothers adaptation, too. We got to talk about how they turned Homer's The Odyssey into Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? For our holiday series, we did The Bishop's Wife and The Poseidon Adventure. And who could forget seeing Alec Guinness in the adaptation of Kind Hearts and Coronets during our series dedicated to him. We really need to do more of his films. Truly. We had our first film noir series with classics like Double Indemnity, Detour, and Out of the Past. And our black and white cinematography of James Wong Howe series with The Thin Man, Sweet Smell of Success, Seconds, and King's Row. So many adaptations. Oh, you're not kidding. Dive deeper into these originals and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book you buy helps support our show. Get the full list at thenextreel.com slash originals and start reading today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. 
It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. Oh, Andy, it's going to be one of those nights, my friend. Can you feel it? It's in the air. <laughs> yes, it is. I thought that was rain in the air. No, no, you have it's... some rain, right? That's rare. It's, yeah, Got I know. A couple of years worth in the last couple of hours. <laughs> It seems that way. Yes. The uh, what do they the, call those? Do they have some fancy name for those? Just a lot of rain. That's not. Like, a, that's not the word I was hoping for. A deluge is the, really what it felt like. Well, you get the dust and the wind, and that's the haboob, mm-hmm. right? And so right. I expected something more um, with with more gravitas. Mm. Is deluge? Does that work? No, or is no, that not, it's. De- Deluge is played, man. That's that's all. It's, it's, <laughs> it's been done. So old. Yeah. Even monsoon has really run its course. <laughs> it's tired. It it's is. Just, t- <laughs> it's just. I mean, really. You need a new word. We need a new word. Hey, can yeah. I tell you something? That speaking of words, this is unrelated to movies, but related to uh, linguistic rage. Oh, exciting. Did you hear about this, that, that all the dictionary, the conspiracy of uh, linguists, uh, they've put, they've added the, the next, the second definition of literally. Oh, you're kidding. Yes. And it means like really, really figuratively. <laughs> <laughs> they just gave up on that one, huh? Yeah, they did. They just gave up. I, you know, I don't know a whole lot of uh, detail, but I did watch a video uh, from one of the uh, associate editors at, at Merriam-Webster, and she made a, a very fine case for it. And of course, I know the background. I know why words become words in dictionaries. I totally understand that. Uh, and yet this one, for some reason, still rubs me the wrong way. Mm. Doesn't it a little bit to you? It does, but yeah. You know, that that somehow it is now justified to say my head literally exploded as if exploding heads uh, was not figurative enough. Idiots. We're we're run by a world of idiots. (laughs) (laughs) I'm, I'm, you know, I appreciate your words, but I'm not feeling that as much as you're on my team tonight. I recognize I may be (laughs) tilting at windmills, but I'm fine with that. I can do that. I will say, I as, as a as a fan of proper grammar, it does irk me. It hurts a little bit. Yes, a wee bit. Uh, telling you, words so mm. dumb. What else have you been doing this week? You you know that uh, zero theorem. We talked a lot about that. Uh, about that yeah. fellow is uh, not doing very well. Uh, no. Gilliam, Gilliam's latest, Terry Gilliam's latest zero theorem with uh, Christoph Waltz. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not doing well. It's not uh, getting much of a release. It's very limited. Is that your theory that it's <laughs> that it's bad because it's not getting a release? It's my it's my theorem. <laughs> I think it's worth zero. <laughs> 
a case uh, where the converse is not true. Uh, it, you know, yeah. it's it's like we said with Terry Gilliam. I mean, I I'm always curious to see his films. It doesn't mean that his films are always great films or even good films, <laughs> but at least he's at least he's doing something new and different. That's really the reason that I am interested in seeing the film is because I'm sure it's going to be quite different, even though I have heard some bad things about it. Yes. Yeah, I think you're. I think you're on the case uh, on that one. I it came out on uh, iTunes. I did not. I I had pledged to see it. But I have not. Uh, I have not put any hustle into that. Yeah. 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 I don't even know. Uh, did it have a theatrical play at all here in the U.S.? I, I have. Uh, I have no idea. Very limited. Uh, I really. I really don't know. Um, I actually see here that it's still scheduled for release September nineteenth. So, so I don't know. Maybe they're going to. Maybe they're not. I mean, if it's, I guess they'll see how it does out there on the uh, the the digital world first. What else have you been up to this week? Anything good? No, you know, I I was reading about uh, Leonard Malton and his latest book. Did you see that? You know, I did. What do you think? I, I think it speaks to kind of what we were just talking about. It's an interesting change in the industry when somebody who's been publishing. I think he's been publishing his book. He started publishing books uh, about like his movie reviews in the late 60s, but I think it was in the early 80s when he started coming out every year with Leonard, Galton, Leonard Malton's movie guide. And it just like every year he was, you know, like a like clockwork, that thing would come out and it would have reviews of just everything. And it, they're always fun, very short, quippy reviews. I mean, they are kind of the uh, foundation of uh, what's that guy's game show that you love so much? Yeah, uh, getting... Uh, Doug with hi Doug uh, Benson. Yeah, yes. Yeah, Doug, Doug loves movies. Doug loves movies, which is right. such a it, it's. I, what is he going to do? And I wonder what he's going to do on this week's show. Um, right. Clearly, he has a lot of ammunition in the can. But the, the whole point of this is after this is the thirty sixth edition. Thirty six years he's put out this this Leonard Maltin's movie guide, and this is the last one. Yeah, uh, two thousand fifteen. Access to reviews online has led to a, quote, alarming decline in readership. Yeah. But, you know, I, we, we talk about this as if it's, he's not going to be, I mean, he's got, he still runs a robust uh, review circuit. Oh, yeah. I mean, he, he, it's not like he's going to stop working or anything, but it's just interesting that kind of the hard copy book that he would put out every year of his reviews that was just always fun to look at and, and a great way to get a quick glimpse at, you know, movies that you were curious about watching, that's going to end. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's a little sad, but it, it just speaks to kind of this constant change in the world in which we live. And now there's just a glut of people reviewing films or doing podcasts about movies or yeah, whatever, right, right. whatever it may be that, People don't need, uh, you know, that source anymore when it's so easy to go to the Internet and just search something and go, oh, OK, that's that sounds interesting. You know, you can see you can see 50 reviews for a film if you type the name in, you know, right, you don't right. need to you don't need to worry about pulling out that handy book and flipping pages to it. So it's you know, it's it's an interesting change and, and I feel bad for him. But uh, 
Yeah, I he, guess it's just the way things work. It it is certainly the way things work. He's you know he's a property in himself. I mean, clearly he's he is he has enough of his. Uh, I I don't know. I'm not I'm not fearing for him. He's over at uh, IndieWire. He has Leonard Maltin's movie Crazy over there, and he's got you know he runs some terrific reviews, and it looks like he'll be continually busy. Well, uh, and if and if there. he's and if he's smart, he'll you know get some apps together of movie yeah. reviews. I mean, that's a great way to do it. I mean, I still have Roger Ebert's Great Movies app on my phone, so I can kind of flip through there and see what he had as his Great Movies list. Have you and ever so looked for Leonard Maltin on the App Store? I haven't actually. I'm doing that right now. Me three. No, there's nothing for Leonard Maltin. Yeah, if yeah. he's smart, he'd get some apps out there, Leonard Maltin. Yeah. That's right. Sort yeah. of surprised he didn't lead with that. <laughs> Keep the book alive until you have the app. Exactly. Leonard Malton. Do you want to, uh, should we tell the people where we're from? Where are we from? Hey, everybody. It's the next reel. I'm Pete Wright. That there's Andy Nelson. Hey. And we spoil movies. Grateful that you put your movie spoilage in our hands uh, this evening. We're going to be continuing our epic saga, the Man with No Name trilogies from Sergio Leone, uh, with uh, for a few dollars more tonight. Uh, but first, you need to learn more about the show. You head over to thenextreel.com, um, and uh, you know you can read the blog stylings of the once future king, Steve Sarmento. You can uh, catch up with all of our past shows and all of the special monthly film board episodes uh, where we uh, do this kind of a thing with the Gang of Thugs uh, for uh, new release films as well. So you should do that. You can join the conversation at facebook.com uh, slash thenextreel or twitter.com slash thenextreel or on Google Plus or, uh, you know, even Pinterest. You can take a look at our uh, massive library of fantastic classic posters from all of the movies that we've talked about and more uh, right there on Instagram or on Pinterest. So you should do that. But most importantly... We have to catch up on the Instagram hashtag guess the movie hashtag pony prize challenge. Andy versus the people. How'd you do? I think I'm, I don't know. Go ahead. Oh, I, I, I don't want to okay. spoil it. You think you did okay? <laughs> I, I did all right. I made it four images in. You know, that's about halfway. Yeah, four is pretty good. Yeah, not too bad. Um, yeah, number it, it, five would have crushed it for you. I think that was that was that was placement. Yes. Yes, it was. It was a million dollar baby, kind of tying into the series a little bit uh, with a little Clint Eastwood action going on. Um, it's, uh, yeah, I, I think that uh, there were some, some good images in there that misled people for a little while. So that's, that's always the aim, I guess. And Amanda09 ended up getting it on the fourth image. And uh, congratulations to Amanda09. She's now entered to win the Pony Prize. Amanda09. Amuses me. Would you like to know why? Tell me why. Because when you actually look at her profile, mm-hmm. her profile is full of babies. I think it's all <laughs> the same baby. I think it's her baby. But it's ironic that she would get Million Dollar Baby when she runs an Instagram po- profile of a million babies. <laughs> wow. <laughs> As adorable, if it was meant to be. <laughs> adorable babies, for sure. So Million Dollar Baby, there were some good uh, good images there. I was actually, I'm, I'm going to tell you, it's rare that I am on top of it. Uh, like I have some, even some of the more obvious ones, uh, I I don't get, because I'm just but, that's not how my brain works. But this one, I I had it. Really? Yeah, I did. 
from early on. It wasn't the second image, and kind of weird. The alarm clock image could have been anywhere, but but the third image I added. Oh, uh, gotcha. Yeah, I was feeling good about that. Well, good on ya. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do trailers. <laughs> I want to go first, Andrew. Oh, all right. Gabe Ibanez. Uh, writer and director of Automata 2014, due out uh, October 10th, 2014 in South Africa. So for our South African listeners, this is the film for you. Antonio Banderas stars with Birgit Hjortsornsen and Melanie Griffith uh, in this film about robots that become sentient and kidnap somebody. Mm. And uh, I, you know what, this is, this caused me to add a whole uh, genre of sentient robot movies to my guilty <laughs> pleasure list. So get ready. I hope that doesn't include uh, IA Robot. It does include that. Yes, I'm going to say it. It wow. includes, I don't know why. You are guilty. <laughs> I, am gu- I am guilty of finding pleasure in iRobot. Because for some weird reason, this is like my my celebration of zombies. This is one of those um, uh, r- robot sort of subgenres, sentient robots that take over the world, that I find fascinating. In this case, uh, uh, Antonio Banderas plays an insurance agent uh, that investigates cases of manipulating robots, and they go off of the same sort of, you know, robot shall not harm a human, and et cetera, et cetera. And so the rules of robotics, same thing that they go through in, um, you know, an iRobot. It's, uh, what's his name who wrote iRobot, please? Uh, Asimov? Right. So it's it's Asimov's three r- rules, laws of robotics, right? The, the robot may not injure a human being or, or through inaction allow a human to become to harm. A robot must obey the orders given to it by human beings, except where such orders would conflict with the first law. And a robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second law. And this is a movie that explores uh, what happens when those laws get twisted up. And it, and it really explores the fallacy of the three laws and... Um, uh, why the laws have have you know often been sort of have come under uh, disrepute uh, because they can be so easily tested. This movie explores that, and I find that fascinating. So even this this is not a great movie. I'm very interested in uh, seeing it. I love the idea of robots. At that, it's it's the same reason I absolutely loved the the latest um, incarnation of BSG, Battlestar Galactica. It's that idea that we are witness to the point at which robots reach self-awareness i am hooked that's all no i think this i think this looks great i think it looks really interesting the cast looks great it's got dylan mcdermott and robert forster in it and did you see that javier bardem plays the voice of the blue robot i know isn't that great it is very cool yeah Yeah. it it looks really intriguing and uh it's nice to see you know antonio banderas is one of those actors who i think uh there, I think he can do some really interesting stuff when he's in the right projects. And I think he has so often not been in the right projects. Um, so I'm excited to see this because I think that, uh, you know, it looks really interesting. And it's nice to see that, you know, it looks like a project he's bringing to us. He produced it. Right. So uh, I don't know much about the director, but uh, 
this is uh, it does look it has a lot of interesting stuff going for it. It it really does. It's like Mad Max meets iRobot. You know, yeah. I haven't seen anything else uh, from the director. It looks like he has a number of visual effects credits, but really is very very uh, sort of small. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, it's, this looks like a, an interesting one that may cause us to go back and catch some old movies. Well, I'm all well, for not it. Old old movies. I mean, in the <laughs> aughts. They're aught yeah. movies. Right. All right. Uh, cool. Let's uh, let's talk about yours. Yeah, mine uh, is Young Ones, the new film uh, that looks like uh, actually kind of like a, a spiritual sequel to Solar Babies. <laughs> Do you remember that from 1986? <laughs> uh, it, it is basically kind of a, a future world. It's almost like a, a, a sci-fi western, which intrigues me. It's a future world where uh, water has just really kind of become this rare resource and people are kind of trying to find it and fight over it and, uh, you know, and protect protect it when they do find it. It looks really interesting. Um, it's got uh, Michael Shannon, who I think is just one of those great actors when he's in anything. And then Nicholas Holt, who uh, is always intriguing. He's one of those intriguing actors that kind of pops up in really interesting roles, whether it's a big budget thing or a small indie film. I really enjoy seeing him on the screen. And then Elle Fanning looks great in it and Cody Smith-McPhee. So it looks like a really interesting film. And just the idea of this this world where people are struggling trying to find water and you've got kind of this, you know, psychological battle between people as they, uh, you know, whether it's, you know, a father trying to protect his daughter from uh, falling for this mysterious young boy who kind of rolls into their area or whether it's the, the, you know, the Google robot dog that's kind of walking around helping carry stuff. I mean, it, they've created really cool world here and, you know, I love the cast. I love the look. I love the feel of it. And uh, I'm excited for this one. I'm sorry. I got uh, really stuck trying to figure out what relationship Jake Paltrow has to Gwyneth. He is the brother. Yeah, right. He's of, he's of the Gwyneth. Right. Uh, so I and he was I, I don't know. Have I seen anything else from Jake Paltrow? I don't think right. so. He's directed some TV stuff, yeah, like, like some episodes of Boardwalk NYPD Empire, Blue. NYPD Blue, and, yeah. right. But uh-huh. not much. I think he's only had one film to his name, The Good Night, which uh, I did not see. I, yeah, I didn't either. But, uh, uh, but yeah. this one, you know, it's I get that same feeling uh, looking at this that I do uh, at the new that new Robert Pattinson uh, film that I have not seen yet, but I'm a very, a very excited to see, um, mm. which is The Rover. Right, did you right. uh, have you caught the rover yet? No, I haven't, but that's definitely on my list. That uh, is another extremely exciting one. That uh, it looks exciting to yeah, me. Yeah, it really looks very exciting. I love the. I I, I love these. I, I have a really good feeling about these films that really take the, um, you know, the, where this barren scenery kind of becomes the character. You know, and it, clearly in this one, the the um, you know likely the major antagonist non-human antagonist is you know the land uh constantly fighting the land and what you know what they're what they're able to do and it's uh, it's a heavy hand on this film and i think it looks really good much better i think um uh, and and we can debate this maybe uh, than solar babies yeah, well, uh, i hope so although at the time i tell you i was quite a fan of solar babies <laughs> It was my, uh, you know, thirteen-year-old self who saw I, that. You know, I'm really not going to lie to you. It. I did too. And there's a, there's actually, I, there, oh man, there's a line that by now has been completely butchered. 
<laughs> because I've used it so much. I don't remember what the what the what the the lead into this line was, but they said something about something totally unrelated, and then they says they they said such and such about such and such, and that's taken from what like bunnies, and from then on for like you know twenty years, I would say like that's what related to what bunnies. That's kind of a thing <laughs> that I did for a long time, really inappropriately, just tag bunnies to everything, and that was from that movie. That's funny. I sort of outed myself there. You did. Yeah. That That's, cool? Here it is. Here it is. They called themselves eco-warriors. Eco being taken from <laughs> what? <laughs> rabbit? <laughs> That's totally it. That's not even ra- rabbit, not bunnies. Ah. <laughs> and then rabbit says, hey, if they took it, they should give it back. <laughs> Where is that? Did you just search for bunnies and find I, rabbit? Yeah, I looked on their uh, quotes page. Oh my! Oh, on IMDb, that's awesome! Yeah. <laughs> wow, I should have gone there. I would have sounded more together. Uh, okay, so, well now I get to change myself up again and go with rabbits. From here, that's right. I, that's, it'll be the defining <laughs> line in your yeah. life. There was the, there was the the bunnies part of your life, and there was the rabbit part of your life. <laughs> <laughs> I've matured and become that's, a rabbit. <laughs> <laughs> I uh yeah, I think we should go uh we should go get a few dollars more. You remember him, don't you? He's Clint Eastwood. And him, John Wells, the great actor John Maria Volonte. They were the men who excited you so in for a fistful of dollars. Here they are, united once more. Clint Eastwood and John Maria Volonte, under the inspired direction of Sergio Leone, better known as Bob Robertson. And for added good measure, Lee Van Cleef in a fast-moving film crowded with action. For a few dollars more. It's the story of two bounty killers, men who inspired fear in the worst criminals. What made these men tick? Well, it's such a big reward being offered on all you gentlemen that I thought I might just tag along on your next robbery. Might just turn you into the law. Naturally. I'll be in the tavern. The air around here stinks anyway. Just like the food. But the month will go fast. Yes, these men knew how to wait. Because in a land where life had no value, death might have a price. I'm letting you leave here. That's so you can tell everybody you've seen what takes place here. <laughs> Didn't hear what the bet was. Your life. I like this movie better than the last one. Do you? So much I want to sing about it. Wow, that's quite a bit. (laughs) (laughs) Like I'm on Broadway. I think I do, too. I actually really like both of them, but I think I like, uh, for a few dollars more, I just enjoy the characters in this one. I feel like Leone came into his own a little bit more with this film. And, you know, Fistful of Dollars, there's, in my mind, I always end up having the comparison between that and Yojimbo so much. And I feel like yeah. I've seen Fistful a lot more, uh, and maybe it's because of the Yojimbo. Every time I see Yojimbo, I feel like I also just watched Fistful of Dollars <laughs> and vice versa, you know. But um, 
this film I haven't seen as much, but I don't know why that is because I really do enjoy this film. I I really do. I was surprised because I'm I like you. I I, I haven't seen this movie. Um, well, it's been a long time since I've seen this movie for sure. Um, but I found from the moment uh, the opening sequence, it just absolutely slays me leading into these just wonderful credits, uh, another fantastic Eugenio Lardani uh, credit sequence that is just wonderful. And uh, from that moment on, I am totally in. I think one of the nice things about this movie is that um, it's kind of a buddy movie, but nobody is good in this movie. The the characters sort of, um, the, the depth of their malice is ratcheted up in this film over the last one. Uh, we don't have quite so many hints of... Um, uh, of uh, you know hidden good guyness uh, that we talked about in the last one, and yet um, you know by the end of the film when we do the typical the Leone three way standoff, um, it is super intense, and I think the emotional the way we get this sort of layered em- emotional baggage is sort of seeded out to us so slowly and so oh, over the course of two hours that by the time we get into that three that triangle, um, it it really has much more weight for me, emotional weight for me, than the first film of the trilogy. Yeah, it definitely does. I mean, you get a lot more time that you, as... As Leone progresses in his films, they get longer and longer, and that gives him time to really develop the characters a little more, to 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 play around with the scenes, like the the, the standoffs that they each have at the beginning. We, I mean, the story itself doesn't start for at least twenty minutes or so, while we're just meeting our our two lead characters, right. which is a you know a, a nice change to kind of give us an opportunity to get to know both uh, Colonel Mortimer and Monko, uh, uh, played by Lee Van Cleef and Clint Eastwood, uh, respectively, as they kind of are these two bounty hunters, or bounty killers, as they call them in the film, uh, who are basically pursuing uh, some bounty that they're trying to uh, catch or kill so that they can make some money. And it's a great way to introduce both of these characters before we even get the story going. And so you get a lot more of that development, which I really enjoyed, Seeing how they how Leone kind of developed the story with these characters gave it more time, and uh, you know, and and even uh, Colonel Mortimer's character. I mean, you said that there's not any as much good, and you know, I don't know if I'd say say that completely. I mean, he definitely is kind of. A, I mean, they're both bounty hunters. They're you know, they're out to make a buck by killing people, basically. Well, and let's be clear. Yeah, I mean, they're bounty killers for a reason in this film. Like they don't take anybody. Right. They, Not, they kill everybody they look for, they're killing. Yeah, it's <laughs> right. always it's, dead. It's always dead or alive, but they go for dead. Right. Exactly. But, I mean, there is an interesting uh, uh, story of revenge that he is pursuing in this film. And I do find that interesting. And I enjoy that bit of the film because he's not completely bad. There's an element to him that is, uh, you know, trying to find justice for his sister that uh, Indio, played by uh, Jean-Marie Volante again, uh, killed. You know, he was raping and killing. 
that, or raping it, and caused to kill herself, it, I guess. But right, right, and you know, I think that's an interesting. So uh, let's walk through the the film just a bit because I, I imagine there are other people who have not uh, seen this film uh, or certainly seen it in a long time. So uh, this one, this film opens and we with um, like you say this long, really restrained uh, introduction of these two major characters of Clint Eastwood, Lee Van Cleef, and they are both on a bounty. Uh, they're they're looking for and and uh, executing this bounty. Um, uh, bounty killings for the money. But in the process, we learn that they're looking for, uh, or they discover that there's a particularly high bounty, a $10,000 bounty on um, on El Indio. Um, uh, this was, uh, as you said, played by uh, Gian Maria Volante. And that's what begins sort of the, the search for El Indio. And we, we don't know up front that there is any connection between Mortimer and Volante beyond, uh, or and Indio beyond there the fact that it's a bounty and he's a bounty killer yes right exactly i mean there is that really fascinating um editing montage when mortimer first sees the poster um advertising you know the uh, the bounty for indio which you know always strikes me as just completely out of left field the montage where it's like it shows the poster and then it's like you hear the gunshot and it cuts to uh, Mortimer's face, and then bang, 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 as it's cutting back and forth between him and the poster. Yes. It's a very strange little uh, montage, but you realize why that is as the film uh, as it, the film comes to a conclusion. And so that's the only hint, really, and I don't even know I call it a hint. And then you have those interesting uh, memory flashbacks uh, for for Indio as he's kind of remembering this scene where he got this pocket watch. Obviously, it was something that kind of affected him, uh, really. So it ended up affecting both of them, interestingly. Well, and that that's something I wanted to bring up. What's your what's your take on that? Because I, I think it's really fascinating that the guy who is on the revenge mission, uh, we only get that flashback. He only serves as a vehicle for any sort of flashback, any sort of backstory once. And it's, as you explained, it's that very weird sort of avant-garde uh, brief montage of gunshots and hysterical laughter Um, and from then on the guy who serves as the vessel of the flashback is the main criminal the 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 violator and rapist um that uh that actually serves as the guy who delivers the journey like he's why we're going on this journey and typically i think it's the other way around right where it's the guy who's seeking who uh it's his perspective that delivers the the uh, the heart of the story right right yeah it's a really interesting way to structure the script where something about that crime affected indio i mean he, we already know yeah. he's he, we know he's twisted we know he is content to murder women and children uh you know he's this just this horrible guy and he he laughs at what he does i mean he's just really despicable but in this flashback he kind of sneaks into this room where there's a a man and a woman uh like husband and wife who are uh together in their bedroom and he guns the man down and then rapes the woman and then takes this pocket watch that is kind of this you know chime that has a picture of her in it uh that plays this tune and from that moment on, he is plagued by by her, really, in his mind. It's as if 
that tune, he can't get it out of his head. And it's almost like this reminder that, because uh, she escapes him. She's really kind of the only person who escapes him. Not Because while he's raping her, she grabs his gun, and she doesn't kill him. She kills herself. And so that may be the thing that kind of triggers this thing in him where he he was defeated. And it's it's going to you know drive him crazy because... That's the one person who got away. And I've, you know, read some people where they say that, you know, there are hints throughout the film that he is impotent from that moment on. And, and that's, you know, something that has been driving him. And that's par- partly the thing that's driving his madness. I don't know if, the, if I got that out of the film, but it is an interesting way to look at that as if that moment is something that kind of made him crack a little bit. And, I mean, you see that through the film. He's he's definitely a, kind of... a a damaged man. I mean, he's, right. you know, he's smoking pot. His buddy keeps giving him uh, joints to smoke. And every time he does, I mean, it's like kind of that weird music plays and he just like, like almost like passes out there, you know? And it's, uh, I don't know. I, I think that he is a man who got stuck in the past when this woman got away from him. And so it is a very interesting idea that he is the one who brings that memory back. And, Colonel Mortimer is the one who uh, isn't thinking about the memory, but obviously is the one who works to avenge his his sister and brother-in-law. Right, right. And that, that in the end, I mean, that's what I mean. Like, you get this hint. I, I guess you could read it that, that there's a hint of good in, in Mortimer. But uh, I, I don't give him that much credit because at the end, even though he has finished his journey, right? He's finished his his revenge journey. He's he's killed the 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 his sister's killer, and he gives all of the bounty, all the bodies, the pile of bodies he gives to uh, to Monko to uh, uh, Clint Eastwood to draw off to get the bounty. Um, we we don't get any sense that that has changed his life at all. That that has changed his path. He's still a bounty killer after he has after this little hiccup in his adventures. Right, yeah, and I, I think that's you know generally true in most revenge stories where the person finally does the killing, but then finds that you know it really doesn't bring that person back. It it really doesn't change much for them. Yeah, I, I don't know that I would say in most revenge thing it may not change for them, but generally once the, you know you you have well, this journey, once you get there, your job is done. It's it's a strange journey for him because yeah. he doesn't you know. Indio is in prison up until that uh, escape at the beginning of the film. Right. And if he really wanted revenge on Indio, I mean, at, while he was in prison, he could have thrown dynamite into the cell and killed him or right. something. You know, right. I mean, there are ways that he could have done that. He didn't seem to care about pursuing Indio until he found out that he escaped. So, I, yeah, I mean, maybe it is just another part of his... Yeah, maybe it was. It was. Hey, isn't, isn't it? Maybe that was the. And that's the first thing I thought was, you know, because you you said. I mean, they establish precedent in the film that tossing dynamite into a cell is a really good way to break somebody out of jail. Right. Like that. That's an easy one. That's sort of low hanging fruit. And yet, you're right. He doesn't. And that's what what locked that into the character for me. That you know, in in fact, either he didn't know that Indio was alive. Uh, or or didn't know where he was until he saw that poster, um, uh, or it was the allure of the ten thousand dollars that re- that that finally made it uh, sexy. Yeah, you know that finally aroused him enough to do it. Yeah, but then it's like that's then that's defeating the the point of, of the his need to avenge his sister. Right, yeah. right. 
Right. But I think that's questionable, right? I mean, I think it's 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 questionable and that's that's part of what makes these characters in these this particular sort of entree to spaghetti western so complicated is that as as sort of um uh goofy and over the top some of the characters can be um you know, when you really look at their motivations, it can be sort of complex. Like why you know, and and the fact that we are not given all of him up front uh, I, I think is a testament to that. Like, we don't know. We really don't get to know, uh, you know, why he does what he does. Well, and like what we said last week, that speaks to what Leone was really trying to achieve with these Westerns. He really loved American Westerns, but he felt they were so black and white, and he really did want to explore that gray area. And that is what he continues here in a, uh, a grander fashion. We've got some very interesting characters here. I mean, obviously, Indio is a very black and white character. He really is just kind of a pure evil sort of character. But Mortimer and Monko both are much more in that gray area. I mean, they live as bounty killers. Their their job is to, or really their profession is to go out and kill people uh, for money. And it's, you know, it's kind of a a dirty profession, whether they, you know, and, and they have to even join up with the bad guys for a while to kind of weasel their way into the group. So they really are operating in that that gray area that I think is exactly what Leonie was wanting to do. And that's right. why I think it makes these characters so much more interesting to watch than, you know, a lot of the other Westerns. I think so, too. I, you know, they play with honor, this sort of honor among thieves in, in kind of an interesting way, right? There, there are a couple of, of examples. One, you know, we, we do see these guys come together, and they kind of test each other in a really nice shoot-off at night. You know, they shoot each other's hats down the street. And you can you, you get this sense that they are, they, they're building, um, you know, not, certainly not trust, but at least awareness of one another and their skills, right? They they come to terms with the fact that they're both hunting the same guy. They aren't clear about the the motivations for doing so, uh, but they do know that together they're more likely to create uh, a sort of between the fire scenario where they can actually take on this gang and and catch their uh, catch their bounty. Yeah, and so they team up, and this nice second act. Uh, of this film gets gets sort of tied in knots around double talk and uh, uh, sort of these little betrayals uh, and you know each each one catching the other on these little betrayals that are really uh, that I think are really sort of interesting they um, you know and I, I think it works towards building trust to this to this moment where they're both caught and they are beaten uh, they're beaten silly together. And, uh, you know, as they, you know, when we see these, these two characters who at once didn't trust each other, then become both prey of this giant, you know, gang, uh, you know, they, you, you see them actually build an affinity finally. And that's where sort of the movie turns. Uh, and, and we get to see, uh, we get to see who they are together. But I, I really like the way they, they play with this, as we have in one sequence, uh, you know, Eastwood and, and Van Cleef are talking, and he says, are you going to take him north? Yeah, I'm going to take him north. And so they immediately they split up, and Eastwood talks um, uh, Indio to go east. Well, he talks, he him talks him into going, him into going <laughs> south, and Indio right. says, I think I'll go east. 
<laughs> so, uh, but either way, he's not going north. But who discovers, who thinks through the plan, uh, uh, you know, Mortimer thinks through the plan and says, ah, yeah, you know, I thought through it and I had a feeling you were going to say exactly the opposite. And then he probably wouldn't do it. And so this is where you would end up. Yeah. Uh, and, and so we end up those, that, those little tiny nudges, I think, really um, do well to play with this concept of honor among thieves of, a, of essentially what amounts to a buddy movie. It's a little bit of comedy where you see each other, where you see these two guys catch one another. Uh, and, uh, and, and finally leads to, I think, a really uh, dramatic beatdown where they finally uh, uh, really come together. Not just the beatdown where they come together, but then the whole showdown at the end. I mean, I think it continues, and it's such a great way that they develop this relationship. So at, by, the, by the time they get to the end, they're working together, and you know, they're kind of getting this whole thing... Yeah, just catching all these bad guys, basically. Well, and a, yeah, and that's the payoff too. When he shows up with that, because uh, this is one of the things, you know, when you, when you, and here's another example of honor in in the film. Why is it when Indio stands up and is about to shoot somebody, he plays the the music that comes out of this pocket watch. And nobody draws on him. Like everybody waits patiently until the music until the music goes down. Right? All these guys are killers. Like they have uh, uh, ostensibly no honor whatsoever, and yet everybody waits. Yeah. Uh, you know, until he says, "When the music stops, now we begin." Yeah, because it's nonsense. There's no it reason anybody needs to do that. And and you know, I guess it goes back to the honor among thieves theory you right. know, that you have that it's like they are going to do it because that's what he said it, it doesn't make any sense but 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 that's what makes that final uh, sequence work right when we're listening to the music and then we hear that second refrain of the second pocket watch that that uh, um, that Monko has taken uh, from Mortimer and he holds it up and there's that beautiful shot uh, that that perfect Leone shot right of from the perspective of immediately behind the watch Right. In, in Mortimer's hand, uh, filling out that that this that incredibly wide frame. No, where, in Manko's hand. In Manko's hand, right, right. In Manko's hand, uh, and uh, filling out that frame where we have uh, Mortimer and Indio on on opposite sides of the screen. It's just a beautiful shot. We hear the sort of competing clips from these uh, pocket watches, and that's the payoff. Like you say, that's the payoff when we realize that these guys really are working together. Yeah, that just works so well. That's, yeah, it's, it's that, fantastic. It's the piece that I think that's the sequence that, that makes this film better than the last for me. Yeah, I, I mean, I think a lot of the elements of the characters just work so well together. And it's an original story, so it, it's bound to kind of just, you know, carry be a little stronger because it, he wasn't, you know, just doing what somebody else had done well before him. Right, right. right. So, yeah. What else sticks out for you? Uh, you know... Just like Leone, I think uh, Ennio Morricone uh, is growing quite a bit with his scoring. And I think the music in this uh, is just, I mean, I think they, they both have fantastic themes, but I think this one just ha is that much stronger. And I think that, I mean, he continues kind of that, uh, you know, he's kind of got the the electric guitar in his uh in his score he's got the 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 uh you know the jewish harp he's got the whistling the whip cracks the gunshots the uh choral chanting everything is going on all through the score and it just is it's just such an amazing score and then what he does i think uh really well just like he does later uh, a couple of films with leone later in what's upon a time in the west he incorporates a musical element within the film 
into the score. And so that pocket watch, um, actually, it's the chime that it plays actually becomes a part of the score. And so you get this great blend of that music as it's um, actually something that the characters can hear, but then it's something that's really just the score that only we can hear. And it's going back and forth. And I think that's uh, just all of this with the music that Morricone does here is just so much stronger than Fistful of Dollars. And it'll continue to get stronger in the next film. Um, but I love listening to the progression of his music from there to here to good the bad and the ugly and uh you know the themes that he has for each of the characters the the little stings that he has like when uh when colonel mortimer comes outside at that first uh, the first bounty while that guy's riding away and he opens up his saddlebag and you see all those rifles in there yes. and you've got that that great musical sting right there i mean he's he's great at giving just those those you know you know one or two second little hits that uh, more or that uh, leone needs to kind of emphasize some points and I, it's a it's a strong element in the film and i think uh, morricone is a versatile musician that clearly knows what uh, what Leone needs to make these films. You know, that was a, that's an interesting point. I was listening to uh, the treatment this week with Elvis Mitchell. It's a, a fantastic show in KCRW. I know I've talked about it before on the show. Uh, and James Gunn was on um, on the show, and they were talking at, at some length about, um, you know, about this idea of kind of the power of, uh, of music, working with the music and, and working with the, the music, how it defines the actual creation of the film, not just the scoring of the film, but actually defines a creation. And, you know, it's one of those things he worked with his, his um, uh, composer to, uh, you know, to develop the music so they could listen to it on set. Uh, and one of the things he kept coming back to was the Leone Morricone partnership. And and it makes me think, you know, I, I haven't been doing enough due diligence or not due diligence, but due justice to the fact that these guys together, uh, you know, really it, it's their work together that redefined how the how we see the Western. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, using that sort of the 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 whistle and this the the, um, uh, you know, the floating lyrical uh, strings uh, to pair up with this incredibly sort of rugged vistas, um, you know, it, it defines our emotional response to these terrific, uh, terrific sh uh, shots. Yeah, it absolutely does. And like uh, like James Gunn uh, was saying, I mean, Morricone would compose the music for these before the shooting started, right. and and Leone would actually play the music on set to kind of give people the sense of it. And I think that's something that um, works really well with both the music and Leone's direction is the understanding that Leone is not making these films where he's just capturing reaction shots of people looking at each other. Um, he's really like the shots of people looking at each other are really just a, a part of the, the, the pacing of the film and are part of the landscape really that, um, that you're kind of seeing. And, and then the music ties into that perfectly, like, especially like in the showdowns and the writing and all of that sort of stuff. It, it, it really works to um, to emphasize those moments and to show us that we're not just cutting to uh, Lee Van Cleef to get a reaction shot as uh, he you know waits to see what uh, what Manco is going to do or or what uh, you know when the music is going to end when he's in his uh, duel with Indio. It's not uh, these reaction shots. You're actually getting these shots where they just he holds on them and they look at each other and it's these fantastic shots and Morricone's score works in tandem throughout the film uh, 
perfectly. It really does. It leads, uh, you know, it, it moves back and forth between trailing the, the editing of the film and leading the editing of the film, particularly in these showdowns. You get this sense that um, it, it's these these wonderful little whistle stings that actually lead each cut uh, eye to eye and each twitch of the eye as they look from one uh, from one to the other, I, I think, are really defined uh, by the music uh, that's yeah. going on. I think that works just so well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's see. What else uh, stands out to you? We talked. Uh, uh, we we want to talk about folks beyond. Uh, well, how did Gian uh, Maria Volante uh, come back from the dead? I think is a um, is an interesting <laughs> question. You know, it, it's it's interesting the way this film works because you know uh, Volante played uh, was in Fistful of Dollars. Right. He died. Right uh, at the end of that movie, and and so I don't know. Is it even worth asking the question of uh, the sort of leading question about the universe? Uh, you know, I, it's not really a universe, and that's the thing that why the the trilogy name, the man with the no name, doesn't really make that much sense because he's a different character in every single film. He goes from uh, Joe to Monko here to Blondie in the next one, right. even though the persona is essentially the exact same persona. And the and clothes. Right, and that's that's what makes him the same. And Universe, uh, are not, a United Artist, when they release this, really pushed that. You know, he, the same, you know, the man with no name is back. I mean, they were really... Yeah. Pushing that as their marketing tool that this is the same character, even though he's clearly not the same character, at least by name. It's almost like the same character plucked up and dropped into a different story and given a different name, uh, kind of like almost like a Stephen King universe sort of thing. You well, know? and that's that's what I was thinking. I mean, it gets to this sort of American Horror Story-esque kind of a, of a right. twist where, you know, each season it's the same actors playing completely different characters. But in this one, it's, it's made awkward. Uh, and maybe only in the eyes of history when we're trying to watch these all three together. Uh, and we're tested because, you know, contextually we're in, a, in an era where uni- we're universe heads. Um, you know, whether it's James Bond or Marvel or uh, Star Trek, whatever, we're talking all about these sort of universes. Harry Potter, I mean, name it. Um, in this case, all the characters are different except for this, you know, the man with no name. And I think the man with no name sort of Hillstor still holds true because, you know, when I think about him, I think, you know, all, we talked about this, all the names had been given to him. He is known as, you know, he never introduces himself uh, as Monko, uh, just as he, as he never introduced himself as Joe. And right. I, I actually hear him, he doesn't introduce himself as Blondie, I don't believe, and Good and Bad and the Ugly. I think they stay true to that. So he really could be the same guy, and it ends up being, you know, more of a of a... Well, I don't know. I was about to compare it to say he's more of a James Bond, but I, I'm not. Uh, I'm not sure I would even buy that. Yeah, right. But that's what makes it. That's what makes it awkward. I think uh, you know, looking at these back to back and trying to to call it a trilogy. It's a spiritual trilogy, and it just happens to be, you know, uh, Leone testing, stretching, the genre maybe. Yeah, and just playing with the characters yeah. that he loves. I mean, yeah. I, I think that's it. Playing he fell with the in icons love. that he loves, yeah. the archetypes. And, the, and that he created, really. Yeah. I mean, he, I think he loved this uh, persona of Clint Eastwood that uh, he created in the first film, that he wanted to keep playing with that same character. And same thing with the, uh, you know, the the bearded black hat. You know, yeah. I mean, I, you can tell he really loves this character that Volante plays, you know, this archetypical bad guy, crazy, pot-smoking uh, 
rapist. Yeah. Yeah. Volante um, is a very big actor and Leone had a very hard time trying to get uh, Volante to act smaller. And it was very, very frustrating for Leone. And he kept having him redo it and redo it and redo it. And Volante was uh, just fed up. And I think that's why he didn't end up appearing in any more of Leone's films, because he was just done with Leone trying to, as he thought, make his performance too small. But clearly, he is an actor who acts very big. I, you know, I think maybe it, it shows that he's he uh, is a theater actor because his performance is so over the top. But you know, I really, really liked his performance, and I I can totally oh, yeah. see that in this film. More, he is smaller in this film, I think, uh, than the last, and I th- I think that really serves his mania. Right. I mean, it really serves his his the the craziness uh, that we get in him, that that sort of more subdued, that sort of eyes are always sort of half down. You know, his eyelids are sort of half drawn kind of. Uh, And I think that really serves, you know, who he is in the film. Well, and, you know, the only other cast member that I had written down that I wanted to talk about was uh, uh, Klaus Kinski. Klaus Kinski who uh, strangely pops up in here as uh, the hunchback. <laughs> oh, so funny. Juan, which, uh, yeah, it's it's a strange little uh, thing to kind of have him pop up here. And he's such an interesting actor to watch. Um, obviously, he's done uh, a lot of stuff with uh, Werner Herzog. Um, but I think it was this film that he was in that, uh, as I, I think I read, that this is the film... That uh, when um, David Lean saw his performance in this film, that's what convinced him to cast him in Doctor Zhivago. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we didn't we didn't talk about Lee Van Cleef too much, and uh, I think he's worth talking about because he is such an interesting presence that hadn't uh, you know he wasn't in the last film, and he's a, a very critical character here, and uh, he's an actor who had been seen in a lot of westerns, but he was never the lead. He was always kind of a a small character who would get gunned down at some point, and. This was really an incredible opportunity for him to basically be given kind of a one of the lead characters in a film. And it was just one of those things where uh, Leone had remembered him. And while he was trying to find the right actor to play this part, um, and he had a few other names that he was looking at, but um, he couldn't afford them or uh, or whatever. And then, um, and then he remembered Lee Van Cleef from one of the Westerns that he had been in. And, and he went out to Hollywood and found him. And Lee Van Cleef had been in a car accident uh, a few years before and hadn't uh, been acting a whole lot, I guess. I mean, he had still had a few things going on, but not a lot of stuff. And he really hurt his legs in this car accident. And... Um, so and was having a hard time, and I guess he was near broke and everything. And Leone offered him this part, and he jumped at the chance, and he went out and shot it. And he's—I mean—he defines just as much as Clint Eastwood does uh, what kind of a, that prototypical Western character is. And I think he—you know—the the squint in his eye and just the the profile that he has and the way he holds a gun and everything about him, I think, just reeks of Western. And it was really this film and the good, the bad, and the ugly that ended up putting him back on the map and and you know this is kind of what led us to talking about him and escape from new york <laughs> i was hoping <laughs> you would bring that up you know it, it's interesting the, the he he brings a sort of um restrained gravitas to this film right i mean he is he, he plays the role of of you know obviously his military background is part of the story um that you know we get the sense of his polish 
Right. Clearly, he has yeah. he, he he is a man of letters and of learning and of of training. Uh, we also get a sense that his talent is unsurpassed, even uh, even by our hero, ultimately Clint Eastwood. You know, I mean, this is this is Van Cleef's story of revenge. And he is, you know, he is the, the character that owns everything. But he's also sort of the teacher, um, you know, for Eastwood, you know, the teacher who reminds him, you know, I, I'm. I'm going to throw you a bone every now and again, but don't ever forget who's, you know, who's driving. Um, And and that's one of the reasons I like their relationship so much, particularly after the showdown at the end. Uh, There's this little moment uh, after, um, uh, what's his name? Not Guppy, Gimpy. What's a character's name who shoots shoots at the end? Uh, Groggy. Uh, there's a sequence at the end after uh, after they're, he's piling bodies and, and Van Cleef's character is ridden off, um, you know, 100 yards or so. And, and um, uh, you know, he hears a gunshot uh, and it's Eastwood and he turns around and, you know, uh, and, and checks in on on uh, Monko's progress. Is everything OK? You know, we get the sense that he's he's still even after he's kind of given up uh, his revenge, he's moving on with his life now in this part of his adventure. He's given up all the bounty. He's, he's still um, uh, sort of taking that 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 teacher ownership or that paternal ownership of the relationship between him and and uh, the younger Eastwood. Yeah, it does kind of have that father-son. I mean, the old man and boy, can, you know, they call yeah. each other quite a bit. Right. And so there definitely is that uh, that sense to it. So, yeah, it yeah. is an interesting, and he does play that well. Leone continues kind of uh, playing with religion uh, like he did a little bit in the last film. In this film, he's mocking a little bit more along with kind of morality. And I, I, I think it's very interesting. I, I love the scene when Indio is talking about his plan to steal this safe. And they're in, in like an abandoned church. And he's up on the pulpit as if he's the preacher preaching to his uh, to his people. Um, and, he, and then the interesting thing is he, he was in prison with this uh, man who had given him the plans or told him about this this secret safe in this bank that they're going to go rob. And this man happened to be a carpenter. And so it's just very funny that here is Indio on the pulpit preaching to his uh, his people about, you know, they're going to go rob this bank and everything, and that he had gotten gotten the word from the carpenter, which is very, you know, a Jesus-like thing. And so... It's. I, I find that very interesting that he continues to play with that and the idea of. Uh, you know, I, again, I'm not really sure if he's saying that much about religion and everything, but I, I do feel that he's kind of mocking it a little bit by putting this scene there, and and playing with these characters in this way where these bad guys kind of hold up in this old church. It's a. Uh, it's an interesting element that that I I really it just, again going back to what we said last week. Another additional element that he throws in that helps build the film in a way that makes it a, a film that is exciting to watch and exciting to explore and talk about. It's isn't, a smart, it's a smart film. It is a smart film. Isn't it interesting on that point that he uh, he has his flock, his followers, his gang. He speaks to them from the pulpit, and it it, it ends in a essentially a betrayal. Right, yeah. he betrays his flock for the money. Uh, by trying to get them, you know, get them killed and run away with one of his uh, thugs with the money. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I think you're. I think you're right. I hadn't made quite that much of a connection until you said that. That uh, there, there are that that sort of mocking undertone is certainly present to me as well. Yeah, yeah, it really is. 
Yeah. Uh, any? Uh, do we want to talk uh, any more about uh, Massimo Dallamano cinematography of the film? You know, I, I think that you kind of said it already. It definitely has just a different color palette, but I, I think that he works really well with uh, with Leone uh, building these worlds and and you know the the tight shots, the you know extreme close-ups that are kind of just such a key to Leone, along with kind of the really wide shots, I think balance each other out really well. And I think going along with that, I think the uh, the production design, I think, is a huge element um, of these films. And I think just as much as uh, Massimo does with the uh, cinematography, I think that the production design really... I mean, it really shines through in in uh, all of these films. It's a huge element. The towns they create, the uh, the look of the world. I mean, it's a very full world. There's a lot of stuff in it, and I, I really enjoy just how well designed um, the all of that is. Uh, Carlo Simi is the production designer on these films, and he does a great job uh, working with uh, Leone and just kind of creating these fantastic Western worlds in Spain that, uh, you know, I mean, they don't necessarily strike me as uh, anything out of the ordinary that you'd see in the Old West. I think that it feels very Old Western, and I love that. And um, it's also fun to look at, like, you know, I don't know if you caught it, but the town at the beginning, uh, Tucumcari, um, where I can't remember which person is in Tucumcari now. I, I believe that it's uh, uh, Mortimer where he gets his bounty. Yeah, yeah. That that is the, that's the same set as Fistful of Dollars. It's just kind of redone a little bit. <laughs> that's funny. I didn't make that connection. Uh, I, I yeah. What I did notice though is after that, I mean, the sets seem va- uh, far more expansive, uh, much less constrained than the last one. I mean, it really feels like um, you know we're in bigger, bigger towns. Yeah, um, and yeah, with a bigger budget to yeah, make the film, so right. it really is. Isn't it interesting in this one that you know we talked about the, we've certainly talked about the the '60s and and the sort of changing expectations and mores around film and what you show on the film. We've talked about the just general violence, um, but here is is one film where we show on screen. Uh, we show someone killing another person in the same shot, right? We show someone shooting a horse. Uh, and we show drug use and a rape, like all in in one movie, right? Uh, and you know, it's interesting. We talk about sort of the the desensitiz- uh, you know, as we get desensitized to to violence. But this is uh, this is one of those films that that is notable for pushing that boundary. Um, you know, and taking advantage of more uh, sort of aggressively, um, an aggressively liberal approach to um, vice and violence, um, you know, I think uh, coming out of uh, Europe, not battling sort of the, the Hollywood American standards. Um, and, and to me, it works to great effect. There's a lot to that tone that they create in the films. And... I mean, it's funny because they, 
they speak to the fact that they weren't even aware what marijuana really did to a person, like when they would smoke marijuana. And <laughs> so they just, they wrote it into the script because they're like, sure, yeah, maybe he smokes smokes uh, marijuana and this is what would happen to him. And so it's very funny, kind of like they're kind of the drug-induced haze that he goes into. They really had no idea. They were just kind of, <laughs> this is what we think happens when you smoke marijuana. <laughs> um, but That's it seems great. right for the character. And in yeah. context now, it actually just adds to kind of that psych, that damaged psychology of him. But they didn't realize that they were going to be creating the film that has like the first major character in a big budget movie that smokes pot. Uh, I mean, there was the kind of the, you know, reefer madness and kind of those lower budget uh, sorts of uh, underground films out there. But this was really kind of a, a big film that, uh, that actually had that. Yeah. And, uh, and, and along with the violence, I, I, I think that they just put this stuff in there because that's how they felt that, this world would be. And it, it, uh, I do think there was kind of European, um, uh, uh, way of thinking that went into that, that, uh, when it came to the U S I mean, cause it opened in 65 in, in Italy and in Europe. And then it didn't open until a few yeah. months after 1967. Um, but it definitely kind of opened the, the doors for people to say, Hey, well, let's, let's play with that, those levels of violence. And, and we don't have to be as restrained as we were back in the forties and the fifties. We can do something more with these films and really kind of be darker and a little change it up a little bit. So it's, it's an interesting element to have kind of come over that kind of helped open the doors and expand stuff. Absolutely. Wow. Got a little tongue tied there. (laughs) Sorry about that. Absolutely, I think it's. Uh, I, I think it is. It certainly makes a statement. The other thing I think we need to. The other cast member I think we need to, to talk about is once again Joseph Egger, uh, who we spoke about as uh, Pira Piro in Fistful of Dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is also in uh, this film, and this is his last film. Yeah. Uh, he he died after doing for a few dollars more. The following year, uh, after initial release in '65, yeah, but he, he was plays, great in this film as the yeah, old kind of prophet, the strange man who lives by who refused to move when the train came through. And you talk about <laughs> these injections of comedy in this film. That that sequence, I think, is is one that really stands out for me. It looks like you know it's shot on the side. It looks like it's you know it's shot on this half building cutaway, and uh, it's it's on some sort of a just cheap gimbal. And th- when they start shaking the thing, I mean, it looks like I'm watching an old episode of like Fraggle Rock. <laughs> it's like <laughs> so. It's it's really. Uh, it, it's sort of amazing and super funny uh, to me. I don't. Maybe I'm alone. Am I the only one who laughed at this? No, he's he's a he's a, he's that quirky character. You know, I I do find um, strangely enough this uh, filmmaking style of Leone, who has this kind of this vulgar sense of humor and who really kind of um, uh, you know reached for dark places with his stories, but also reached for really strange kind of over the top goofy characters in his films. I found a strange, um, uh, relationship, uh, between the films that he makes and the films that, uh, my favorite French filmmaker, uh, makes, you know, like, uh, thinking of, um, I know <laughs> what's it, I'm blanking on the professional, you know, yeah. and, and you've got, I was just thinking about Lucy, <laughs> 
Yeah, over the top Gary Oldman, and yeah. uh, and then you've got Gary Oldman's buffoon, uh, you know, cohorts that he works with. Exactly, it's this strange balance. I I don't think that uh, Besson's works nearly as well as as Leone's do for some strange reason. I just really enjoy Leone's characters uh, much more than I do uh, uh, Besson's, and I, I don't know why that is, but. <laughs> Well, I even I agree with you there. I but I, I think you're absolutely right, and that's uh, that's one of those connections. I think that's really uh, that's really interesting. You know, when you when you watch again, when you look at the film in terms of, of character archetypes, and you see um, sort of the 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 cultural um, kind of gestalt that they map against these different times, uh, that works really really well. Yeah. Uh, two last things. All right. Um, IMFDB. Oh, of course. <laughs> How can I forget it? The Internet Movie Firearms Database. That's right. we got a few extra uh, weapons going on here. We still have the single-action army, uh, the revolver that uh, Eastwood has, the fantastic rattlesnake, and a few other characters uh, use that as well. But then, uh, of course, Mortimer, he's got his, uh, his uh, single-action army buntline special. That's the one he fits with the shoulder stock and uses kind of like a carbine rifle when he's uh, shooting that guy at the beginning. Uh, that's a little fantastic <laughs> little tool. That is a wonderful little gun. It is. It really is. And then he's got the Winchester 1892 saddle ring carbine, and he's got the uh, Springfield 1873 trapdoor. Oh, actually, that's one of the ones that one of the uh, prison guards used. And then, let's see, there's also the Lefauché model 1854. Uh, there's the Remington 1866 Derringer that uh, uh, Mortimer has kind of up his sleeve that he pulls out to kill the hunchback. Uh, volcanic repeater rifles, the Marlin 1893 Colt lightning rifle, and a good old 12-gauge double-barrel shotgun. Good old. Yep. <laughs> old faithful. Good old, old faithful. Uh, so, yeah. I love it. Nothing like a few weapons. Yeah, that's right. Jane grab the link for few, that in the show few, notes. A few guns more. <laughs> a few guns more. And then I uh, just want to throw this out there also. In case you're interested in going and visiting the, the sets from this film or Fistful of Dollars or even Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, or heck, even Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, <laughs> um, you can head over to the desert of Tabernas in Almeria in Spain. And they actually have a mil- mini Hollywood there where a lot of these sets are actually still around. And I believe that the town of, uh, um, is it uh, Sweetwater from Once Upon a Time in the West is out there. And I think that uh, El Paso, the town uh, here where they do the uh, the bank robbery set, is still out there too. So uh, head on out to El Maria if you want to you know, walk where Leone and his uh, cowboy stars all wandered. Why weren't they shooting in Mexico? It's a money thing, I think. I mean, you know, Spain is awfully close to Italy. Well, I guess that's a good point. Italian production, they didn't have big budgets. Yeah, yeah. And so they stayed uh, close to home. But speaking of budgets. Yeah, let's talk about the budget. Yeah, this one was three times the size of the last one. It was $600,000. So he had a much bigger budget, and obviously that gave him a chance to make this more expansive, like we've already said. And I think it looks uh, looks great. Um, This film did really well for itself for the $600,000 budget that it had, which, you know, in today's dollars is um, just over $4 Um, This actually became the most successful Italian movie ever made up until 1971 when uh, that's was broken, but a good six years, it was the most uh, most uh, successful Italian movie um, out there. 
Of course, I, like last week, I couldn't find any numbers on anything uh, relating to the Italian money. So this is all based on uh, what I found for the U.S. dollars. But even here in the U.S., $600,000 budget, it ended up making about $15 million. So it did it did well for itself. Um, adjusted, it ended up making per finished minute uh, just here in the U.S. Um, about $750,000. Let's, uh, let's head over to FlickChart, shall we? Let's do it. Let's do it. You go over to flickchart.com and you go to flickchart.com slash the next reel. That's where you'll find our stack rankings of all of our favorite films and, uh, you know, the films that aren't our favorites anymore. And uh, you should stack your films and see how yours compare to ours. And uh, let's see. For a few dollars more, cracks the top 50. All right. Here we go. For a few dollars more or the born supremacy. No, we made a mistake last week. Oh, uh-oh. Don't you think? I mean, this was the thing. I don't know. I'm going to I'm going to choose a few dollars more and I'm not going to do it just as a, you know, as like a a platform vote. I mean, I really I I would watch this movie first. No, I think I think we voted right. I think for a fistful of dollars, I probably would pick the Born Supremacy over that still. For a few dollars more, I probably would pick that over the Born Supremacy. All right. Well, then we're in violent agreement. We are. Violently. <laughs> All right. Uh a couple uh international films here for a few dollars more or Das Boot. Um, uh, I, I think would do, a few dollars more. Yeah, I would too. Yeah. Uh, for a few dollars more or the world's end. Ooh. Mm, I'm going to go the world's end. Yeah, me too. How about, uh, for a few dollars more or Shaun of the Dead? Well. I think I'm going Shaun. Yeah. All right. For a few dollars more or Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Mm. I think you're going to go Eternal Sunshine. I think I am. I'm on the fence. I'm really genuinely on the fence. I would go Eternal Sunshine because that script is a genius piece of writing. I think that the whole whole notion of erasing somebody, you know, in perpetuity, really, I think is a, a very brilliant concept. Okay. I'll do that, too. All right. <laughs> Oh, and look at that. Number 37. That's That didn't work. Why? Well, it didn't bump it up to above Eternal Sunshine. Or Eternal Sunshine we picked. Never mind. Yeah, we okay. did. Okay. That was right. That's right. That's right. And look at that. Number look 37. At that, number 37. <laughs> well done. I feel like uh, this is getting, testing my brain more each week. Uh, crack the top 50. So uh, next week... Uh, we're wrapping it up with the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yeah. And that will be our, I think, well, it's not our 150th film yet, is it? It'll be 147. 147th. All right. We're so getting we're, there. I was getting all excited. I thought that was. It's our 150th show. Right. Ah, okay. Right. okay. Those, stupid, we got those... those stupid Oscar shows that we used to do. <laughs> and yeah. The, the, yeah. So. All oh, right. Yeah. Well, it is what it is. Yes. All right, we're close. Hey, uh, any other notes from the people before we go to bed? I ain't going to bed. I got some people to hunt down.
Uh, so this is by Happy Camper. Other than Clint Eastwood, Lee Van Cleef was a man who could play a cowboy without thinking about it. The two together, and a few for a few dollars more, Eastwood is Monco, Van Cleef is Colonel Mortimer, two bounty hunters chasing El Indio. Bloodshed is bound to happen. FFDM, for a few dollars more, for those who don't know, is a... <laughs> It is a perfect example of Sergio Leone's Spaghetti Western. Uh, I totally agree with that, and I actually like the the way he puts it. Lee Van Cleef, he's a man who could play a cowboy without thinking about it. In fact, if you're not careful, if he's not careful, he will just start playing a cowboy, uh, you know, at Starbucks. If there was a <laughs> Starbucks where he is, you know, he's and, dead and now, happened. but he's dead now. No. But, you know, he just sometimes breaks into cowboy, and he, he's not thinking of it. It's very dangerous. Wow. He draws on a cashier and... It's not safe having him. <laughs> What's yours? Mine is a four-star classic Western by Alan Clayton, who says, To know and appreciate Westerns, everyone must watch this movie. Also, the musical score from this movie is famous and has been heard inside many elevators and grocery stores. <laughs> <laughs> what? I don't think I've heard the theme song from uh, for a few, for a few dollars, dollars more in the elevator in a before. grocery store. <laughs> a grocery store. Walking down the aisles, hearing all the whip cracks and whistling. Yeah. And, we can goodness. fight. We can fight. <laughs> we can fight. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I have tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022. We switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs> <laughs>